You're listening to The Morning Muster, where we get sailors together to listen to the weather report and, well, to talk about the most important topics of the day. So grab a cup of hot chai. Or a coffee. I'm Teresa Carey. And I'm Ben Carey. This podcast is produced by Morse Alpha. We offer rigorous coastal and offshore sail training expeditions. Check out morsealpha.com. is sponsored by Outland Hatch Covers. Outland makes next-generation hatch covers made from PVC that protect your hatch acrylic from harmful UV damage and help keep the cabin cool. They're also super easy to put on and take off. We've got Outland Hatch Covers on all our hatches and even on all the ports, in the cabin, in the hall. We love them. I, I honestly wouldn't switch back to canvas hatch covers. Oh gosh, no way. Check out outlandhatchcovers.com for more info. Stone walls are crumbling and the trees are coming home. Forest to pasture and pasture to woods. The stone walls are crumbling and the trees are coming home. All right, so I want to just ask you guys what, I'll ask Daphne in particular, tell me, tell me quickly, briefly, give me, get me up to speed on your story with your boat, your other boats, if you have any. I don't even know your story. So give me, I, I know where you're at now, but give me some background in, in a brief kind of way. I paired all of my other boats down to just these, well, two. I've got a dinghy too, but um, basically just my Fast Passage 39. And last year it had, I came back to it. I'd been away for like nine months or so. And I came back to it and found that it was flooded in the inside, only up to the floorboards and everything had like molded over lots of stuff got ruined. So I've just been kind of doing, I did triage a year ago. I pulled all the cabinetry off the boat and all of my personal possessions off the boat and just basically hosed everything down with vinegar and scrubbed and now I've begun the long process of refinishing the interior and just kind of giving things a, a once over and seeing what works and what I would like to, or what needs to be replaced, what needs to be modernized and what just needs to be completely rethought out and gutted and redone. And like my fuel system is a big thing. It just needs to be completely redone. <laughs> so it sounds like a big project. It's a huge project. <laughs> I was going to ask your Fast Passage Thirty Nine. Is this the the first boat you've done a big refit on? And my other question, I have two questions. Was are you doing the refit because of the flooding, or did it already need a refit before that? Um, it's kind of a mixed answer. I uh, I had spent like the pandemic summer doing a refit, just uh, basic stuff, hoses and things that weren't working right off the bat. And then on my way down the Chesapeake, the engine quit. So I had taken the, I had tracked it down to a valve issue and, or a, a fuel pump and valve issue. And so I took the, the head off and I was going to redo the head. And while I was doing that, then the boat flooded. So it's just kind of um, somewhat of a mixed bag. But now that I'm really having to, to get into the bowels of the boats, it's just become another full refit almost. Did that answer your question? Yeah, and and was there another boat that you had done major work on beforehand, or is this really your first in boat getting into it? No, this is this is my first one. Daphne, I have a question about that being your first one. I feel like a lot of people 
it's like a daunting project, you know, because there's a lot of different skills involved in refitting a boat. I know you have like you're technical minded because I know the career that you have. And, um, and I know Steve, that's what he also does for work a lot is work on boats. So he's got those skills too. But in, in terms of like deciding to get this fast passage and deciding to do this big refit or flooding and forced to be to do this big refit. Um, I mean, that's a huge leap of faith. Was it scary? It's, I don't, I don't think I'd use the term scary. It's, it is daunting. You just, you kind of sit back and you look at the amount of work that you have to do. And it's just, it's pretty overwhelming. And, you know, I, I keep a little uh, picture up on my Instagram account of me sitting under the red light. The first time it was like occurring to me, all of the work that I have to do. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's just like a common thing that I live with now. That was the first time I had that feeling. And now it's just like I wake up and almost daily have that feeling. And you just kind of have to, you know, go in and tackle something. And, you know, you have like several projects going at once. So if, if you just need an easy fix, you can just go and do a small project and then get to the big stuff later. That feeling that you're talking about, about waking up in the morning and thinking, oh, I have so much to do. I feel like Steve is addicted to that feeling because you, you <laughs> love project boats. <laughs> I don't know that love is the right term. I just find myself in this trap. It's like a kid at daycare. Like they don't want to get sick. It's just, it's going to happen. Steve, can you uh, give us the run, the background on your story now, where you're at with your boat projects and what's going on? Yeah, actually, I was just sort of um, Daphne. Who who designed the Fast Passage? Uh, it's William Garden. Is it? Okay, yeah. So although probably... there's there's been something that I've been tackling is that William Garden basically ripped off everything below the waterline from Robert Perry, but Robert for, for the Valiant Forty, but Robert Perry may have taken a little bit of William Garden to design the stern of the Valiant 40. So there's this kind of, whose boat is it really? Yeah, no, exactly. And also just sort of looking at the, yeah, I just pulled it up on sailboat data just to kind of get a, a gander at the layout and all that. Uh, and it is, it's almost, you could probably overlay the two. Not the layout, but certainly hull shape is very, water, very yeah. similar. And well, that's fun because that. Steve, you have a Valiant 40 and you have a Fast Passage we, 39. I didn't think that through when I invited you both on. This is, this is great. I know. It's looking at a very, very similar thing. But likewise, the smaller volume production boats are all as similar as any might be. You know, even, you know, number one and number two off the line are going to be sort of slightly uh, dissimilar. But yeah, so we, we kind of have two tracks of, of the, the boat projects list. I guess the one is sort of the professional side of things. Um, which somehow is like very strongly delineated from mentality and mindset uh, and approach for me anyway, than when it comes to our own stuff, somehow it's like, it never follows the same formula, you know, the, the organization and the, you know, the attention to, to detail in regard to process and timeline that happens on the professional side of things never carries over to our own projects. You know, my, my own boat project usually ends up just being this kind of chaos of everything going at once. Um, which is sort of funny, but uh, we've had three sort of quote unquote bigger boats over the years. So we started with a Cape Dory 28 that was more or less um, good to go for what we needed. And, you know, it was the same standard layout, didn't do anything in particular. It's kind of the small knickknack projects. And that's back when we, we being my wife and I, um, girlfriend at the time, and you know, doing projects where you don't really have any resources, no real tools, you're kind of scrapping whatever 
tools you're borrowing off the boats you're working on or, or you know, materials around. Um, so the, the way you approach projects and the, the types of projects you actually get into are so much different. You know, replacing, I don't know, the leaf on a table or something is this enormous undertaking when you're sort of living on your boat and you don't really have any space or materials or money. Uh, you know, and you compare that to maybe when you're in a better setup, you might be doing a complete gut of the interior and it's pretty much the same scale of project, right? Which is probably applicable to someone who's never started a project. You know, that first thing you're doing, replacing a hinge could be the same as someone else repowering because it's the same scale in your mind. You know, it takes up the same bandwidth and the same sort of apprehension, I guess. But um, uh, yeah, so in that Cape Dory 28, we had some soft deck issues. So it was a plywood, you know, a balsa core deck and a solid fiberglass hull. So we replaced a good chunk of the deck and that was our, my first approach at fiberglass work. Um, I think that was the only major thing on that boat, some, some rigging. And then went to a Tartan 37. That was again, more or less, you know, untouched by us for a long time. It was in pretty good shape, all things considered. It was sort of a marina queen for someone, but not in the, the pretty sense, just in the, it sat in a marina all the time and didn't really get any necessary maintenance. Um, but that owner had blown up the engine. It would have been a their Westerbeek or a Perkins or something, but I think it was a Westerbeek. So something in the 30, 35 horse range and replaced it with an old two cylinder Yanmar. So we got the boat with a two cylinder Yanmar, um, but the original prop on it. So it was super over propped, which is sort of its own tangent. Um, so eventually we repowered that boat with a, used beta 30 or 35 and i don't think there was ever any major structural work on that boat thankfully um but there's always the sort of the wiring and and all that stuff that you get into over the years and then i am unfortunately a victim of that sort of sailboat wanderlust and you know eventually it's like gosh you know we really we need a bigger boat and i guess the the dream layout in my mind is sort of that 40-ish foot range two cabin um or sort of two sleeping cabin layout and somehow ended up looking at this valiant 40 that was in a boatyard that looked kind of rough and sort of cold called the guy and he was really nice but he still wanted like 50 or 60,000 for this boat that wasn't really on the market but you know delaminating hull and failing issues but uh so we we're looking at another valiant 40 and it ended up not being you know, truly on the market. So it was too expensive, but he referred me to this friend of his and this background story is kind of neat because the guy put an offer in sight and scene of a Valiant 40 on auction in the Chesapeake. Uh, didn't hear anything back for months, found another boat, cruised the Caribbean or the Bahamas on his other Valiant 40 that he found, then gets a call just before he heads North or an email that says, Hey, you know, you've, you're entering bid of whatever it was, you know, a couple thousand dollars, uh, has been accepted. You're no longer contractually obligated to take this boat, but if you want it, it's yours. And long story short, he goes up to the Chesapeake on his way home. He's from Maine, uh, younger guy, lobsterman, and goes up to the Chesapeake, buys the boat for pocket change, tows it back without an engine uh, with his other Valiant 40. So there are pictures of two Valiant 40s sailing from the Chesapeake up to awesome. up to Maine, one under tow. Um, I think like he couldn't go. I forget if he was able to get through the canal somehow or not, but I don't think he did. I think he had to go around. So yeah, anyway, so towing a Valiant under tow with another Valiant. Um, so anyway, the boat ends up on the hard 
uh, just down here in Midcoast, Maine. And there's some issues with the Valiant 40s, the early ones, the keel was basically all of the lead was up forward in this modified fin keel. And the whole aft section was a fairing uh, with no real structural integrity. So the boat had fallen on that, collapsed the keel. And then it had also filled with water, you know, about up to the sole boards and sat like that for a couple of seasons. So just tons of, you know, of uh, cycles with uh, water in there. And, and freezing. I yeah, thought it was a freezing. great idea to buy it. So we got it for a song, but basically... <laughs> <laughs> anything that anything that was laminated was falling apart uh there's a lot of rot not the guy i bought it from but the gentleman who had it before him had it for like 10 years and basically stripped everything tried to touch every project and never finished hardly any of it um got through some stuff but most of it was sort of in a stage of of completion varying stages so there's a lot it, it's one of those things where this this is the first like the transitional point in my life with this boat where you sort of you sell yourself in this project that you're romantically engaged with. And then you very quickly realize like you just have no desire to put in this much work and no capability to put in that much money to have someone else do it. Right. So it's, and this romantic sense of obligation to a boat, you know, so it's like, we're not just going to let it go, but gosh, it'd be great if it wasn't a project still, you know, so I, I still look at other boats that are similar size that are sort of more complete and think, gosh, wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? Um, I, Steve, I suffer from the same habit. Steve, I'm <laughs> going to give you a gift. Oh. I'm going to give you a gift. And that is, you are not obligated to this boat whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are at a point where there is some financial it's obligation. It's just a boat. <laughs> <laughs> and, sounds like therapy now. Yeah. Oh, this, that's what, what we should have the podcast. It's just that. That is the other thing. So, and I also live on my boat in the summer um, when I'm working because I work on a an island nearby as a as a captain for a family. So it also has that, I need a boat in that rationale, right? Cause it's either a boat or you're paying a thousand dollars a week to rent a place there. But yes, that, that's our current project. And there's a lot, a lot to be done there. Um, the big things at the moment are we re rebuilt the keel from scratch, um, or the, the fairing portion of it, repowered the boat cause it didn't actually come with an engine. So put a new engine in, um, have replaced a, good amount of the electrical system sort of starting from scratch there was a good panel that came with the boat so that's the funny thing is there's a project boat so this guy had bought a lot of good material and good components that never got installed so there are a lot of funny things that are getting kind of reinstalled that way but but it's daunting i think the daunting aspect is is what's big you know it's when you're mid projects and and it's staged too so you know the boat isn't finished the interior is not finished and we've been living on it or using it you know with um structural bulkheads are all there but other, you know, dividing bulkheads aren't there. Certain mm -hmm. um, longitudinal, you know, woodwork isn't there. Like the engine compartment's all exposed. Um, so it's you're living with that day in, day out. And, you know, you have this scope and this plan of, of what to do, but certainly some days. And then, you know, you open up a drawer and the, the, the hinge falls off and you just think, oh, yeah, I also have to replace every hinge on this boat because they are all rusted out. You know, it's, you have the big scope, but it sort of expands. I think what you said at the very beginning was – Right, spot on. You guys both have these huge project boats right now. And um, you said, Steve, earlier that you could be um, doing something really small, like uh, fixing a hinge on something. And if it, and if you're a newbie or this is the first project, first time you've picked up a drill or a screwdriver, it's like 
daunting, right? This is a huge project. You got to get out your manual and whatnot and learn how to do all this. Or you're rebuilding uh, like Daphne is. She had her engine in pieces in the garage on the floor and she was put, piecing it all together. And, you know, if you've got some skill, you look at that and it's the same scale of a project um, depending on your skill level. Right. So for the newbie, that hinge is a, a huge deal. And then for someone with some skill that uh, put piecing together an engine might not be a huge deal. And I think um, I think for a lot of people buying a boat, well, for me, buying a boat was a huge leap of faith. Um, that's how I describe it. And um, my first boat was named Daphne. It's such a strong, powerful name. Great name. Um, Yes. And, uh, um, and I bought this boat truly for love, like a truly leap of faith. Benji had just bought his Bristol Channel Cutter. I had just met him because um, I inquired about his first boat that he was selling. Um, but I really wasn't interested in the boat. It was like a pipe dream. I never thought like that was real a reality for me that that would be a next step that I could actually take because I wasn't there. Um, but I was curious about the guy selling it. So I you know, made an inquiry. But anyways, he bought his Bristol Channel Cutter and he was ready to go sailing. And I wanted to sail with him and he wanted to sail solo. He really wanted that solo experience. And so he was just like, well, why don't you buy your own boat? And I was like, darn it, you know what? I will. <laughs> and so I bought the next uh, North Sea that came up for sale and um, had no money. I was just a teacher at a boarding school making like $12,000 a year. I had no money. I had no skill. I had worked on engineless wooden boats and um, no skill in how to take care of fiberglass, how to take care of electronics, how to take care of engine, how to take care of any of that. And I had this boat and I planned on living on it because how could I afford to buy a boat without living on it? And so it didn't have a um, flush toilet. It had an MSD, a marine sanitation device. And with those things, you really have to, if you're using it regularly, you have to, it was such a small tank, you have to empty it every other day. And so I wanted the option of having an overboard discharge, or at least so I thought I did at the time. I have different feelings about it now. But anyways, that was my plan. And um, and so uh, once you get into doing boats a little bit now, after years, I understand that putting a through hull in a boat is pretty, you know, there's step-by-step -step things you have to do. And it's pretty simple, really. And um, But I did not know that then. And so... I read and read a lot about it. I took notes. I approached it like I was taking a, a final exam or something. And um, I, I, I decided where I was going to put this through hull for the overboard discharge. And I drilled the hole for it and freaked out. I was like, oh, my God, now I have a hole in my boat. My boat's going to sink. The dream is over. <laughs> what am I going to do? And let me, let me just say, I drilled a pilot hole, like, a drill hole, not even the actual through hall hole. So it was a teeny tiny hole. And it was a very scary thing for me. But I always, now anybody who comes to me and says, I don't know how to take care of boat. I'm really nervous about this. Or my husband does all the work on the boat and I don't know how to learn how to do this. I always say, you got you to gotta drill a hole in your boat. That's where you got to start. You have to start with that first project you want to do and drill that hole, whether it be like hanging a new coat hook on the on the bulkhead or something or installing a through hole. Um, you've just got to start by just taking that first step. And everything after that, it was always the same. You know, the first oil change I did, there was oil all over the ceiling and whatnot. But eventually I took my engine apart in half and replaced um, a 
connecting rod, event connecting rod. I had to think about what it was. Um, and that's a big project, I think, for engines. For sure. Yeah. So yeah, you got to drill that first hole. And you did a video on that, didn't you? Do you remember seeing? Uh, I probably took some pictures and video, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> And I still have that bent connecting rod. It literally is like a little arch, like a rainbow. I have it. I used to do that too. Keep all of my old broken stuff. <laughs> it's just amazing that it could bend like that yeah. because of a little drop of water or something in the wrong spot. I'm just, I'm just amazed. I should say that like the, the thing that's made it easier for me to transition into boat work is that, you know, 20 years ago, I bought an old eclectic four by four vehicle. And that was kind of my entry point into the world of mechanics and doing repairs and modifications and stuff like that. So I had that background coming into the boat and the boat is really kind of reflective of that ancient truck that I used to own. It's, you know, built like a tank. It has some issues and it's easy to work on. Okay, I want to get into some nitty gritty with you guys, because I know you both have really long lists. And when I redid Elizabeth, I had a pretty long list. I have a long list right now on Rocinante. They, they just never seem to go away, right? Lists never go away. One thing gets crossed off, two things get added, right? Isn't that the old adage? I just have to say, I want to just interrupt you there, Benji. Benji has this long list of projects that he wants to do on Rocinante. And he's always like, Oh, I have so much to do. It's not, and he's always like so down on himself for having this huge list. And I tell him, you need to make a list of all the things that you've done because Rasanante has come so far since we bought that boat and it's beautiful and everything's, there's a lot of great things about it. You know, all the, it's, it's safe, it's sound, it's clean, it's tight, everything works. The projects that he has are like extras, I think. I mean, there's always projects, right? Um, but He's always looking at this list, his to-do list, and feeling like, oh, this is never-ending. And I keep telling him, you need to make a list of all the things that you've done because it's pretty amazing. All the things that we've done. I was a part of that, too, for a while, and now I leave it. I kind of step back from that. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> um, so I just want to talk about how we, how we organize that list and how we prioritize and you know, it's a it's a huge topic because I also want to talk about budgeting, money, and time. There's a lot of things to discuss here, and just want to get into some ideas of how you think about those things. Let's 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 start with um, you know organizing the list. We all have long lists. How how you, how are you prioritizing your lists? Um, well, for me, I've I've only recently, like as of the summer, started breaking things down into into groups, maybe. And I've just, I started doing that in sections of the boat, like the anchor lock or the V-berth, the salon, hull and deck, and just, you know, have kind of running lists in somewhat of a prioritized fashion from top to bottom of what I need to attend to. But, you know, it's not like you kind of hit every target on the way down because so much of that is dependent just on the weather or do you have the right tools or the parts for doing that? And if you don't, then you just kind of hit pause and you move on to something else on the list that you can tackle at that moment. Sounds familiar. That's how I do it. Yeah, it, it does seem like there's always something that's going to hold you up from doing the project you really want to do or need to do. And so you have to do project B or C instead. So I found, Steve, what do you think? Yeah, I think, and it also, let's just say, I think Daphne and I are probably both coming from a similar similar place, which isn't where most people are, I would, I would presume, you know, most folks listening is that 
you know, we have boats that are have a big list, you know, and it's sort of a huge scope of project with many different major categories. Um, whereas, you know, even on like Rosinante at this point, she's, uh, you know, it's a complete boat, complete sound boat that you're using professionally, commercially, you know, and doing projects in between trips. And then obviously you have your big winter list, but it's, I think, and all the various boats I've had and boats I've worked on professionally where you're working on projects that are inside of a, a sound hole, you know, there's a no, whole W H O L E, not just, you know, our scabbed up patch in the hull or something, but um, where you're working on a project that is, is sort of one thing and it's attainable and kind of easy to set, set a scope around it. Whereas I think when you're starting or taking on a big, huge scale of a project, you know, a major overhaul refit, especially refit on a boat, um, you know, like our classic cruisers where the list is kind of enormous and sometimes you're triaging, you know, and it's whether this is the boat that's going to sit in your dooryard for 10 years while you attack these lists or, you know, in our case, we, we bought the boat while we still owned another one. Um, and I sort of had that fallback where, cause again, you know, I, I'm counting on this as sort of my, um, my accommodation for the summer while I'm making my living. Uh, so, you know, but then eventually we sold the other boat. So now we, we had one boat and the question is, you know, can we, what, what has to happen for this to float, you know, so that I can, I can live on this if I need to. So there's sort of that, what do we have to do to make the hull sound? And then it's, so that's sort of the, the primary thing. It didn't even have to sail. You know, we, we could tow it over if we needed to and set it up on a mooring. Uh, and then, you know, the triage kind of goes from that sort of list to then it's like, okay, well, what's the next necessary component? You know, in our, our opinion at the time was let's make sure we have all the structural integrity to have, have the rig in and have the boat be sound and, you know, completely integral, not necessarily to go sailing far, but to have some form of, of sail on board and propulsion op option. Um, and then, you know, from there it's okay, well, well that's done. So what's our next part of the list? Okay. Well, we want to have some form of electrical system. So let's get some sort of battery and charging mechanism in place. Cause again, we didn't have an engine that first year. Um, you know, so you sort of, you get that done and in a sound way and then, okay, well, water would be nice. Let's get a water, you know, some sort of system in place for portable water. Uh, then, okay, well, let's, we need a head. What are we going to do for the head? So our, our list kind of takes that scope of what is it we need? What, what's our end goal? And sort of, you have the whole big projects list, but then that's also breaking down into kind of what our needs are and timeline. And those sometimes play off of each other, you know, and, and, figuring out what can we actually undertake, you know, with our budget and our timeline. And then what, do we, you know, what do we need to get done and playing those off of each, I think is for, for this specific project on our end. My God, I feel like you're building a boat from scratch. It would probably have been easier. <laughs> yeah, it, it is pretty daunting. I, I did go over, I've seen Steve's project a bit. And, you know, when you were redoing that keel, that was just mind blowing to me. Wait. But it was also like an archaeological dig because I got to see the inside of a keel <laughs> that I've never, ever seen before. It's like, oh, that's what's inside there. Really interesting. And if the project goes slowly enough, you really do get to see each stage of it weeks weeks at a time. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what happens this winter, if anything. I'll have to pop over and see. I'm hoping to just keep doing podcasts so I don't actually have to go work on it. Hey, me too. Me too. <laughs> but up here in the, in the winter, it is kind of tough to motivate to go out and get projects done 
when it's 25 degrees out. And that's uh, why sometimes you hire Steve to come work on Rosinantes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve and I have the annual shrink wrapping. That's that's pretty much all we're up to these days. Yeah. Shrink wrapping event. That's a good time. What Daphne? What are you What are you into uh, this week? You're You're on your boat currently, aren't you? Yes, I am. Um, I think I have been, I've really been, I've, I've really torn apart the uh, the bow, like on the deck area, because I had to drill all sorts of new holes for foot buttons, new windlass, uh, relocating the diesel fill a little bit, new venting, stuff like that. And I was just like, you know, I, I do need to paint the deck at some point in time, but like, I don't want to put all this stuff back in if I'm just going to take it all back out again. So I started... I just said, I'll just paint the bow section right now. <laughs> and that was going pretty good. Um, this is my first time doing boat paint, and it's been working out okay. But then the weather has been terrible, and um, I can't hardly find a degree a day where it's above 50 degrees and not raining. So, you know, it's either the temperature's right, but it's, you know, pouring rain and windy outside, or... It's a beautiful sunny day like it is today and 45 degrees and none of that stuff's going to set up really well. So <laughs> I think I'm just in a place where I have to shrink wrap the boat for the season and just table all that stuff to next year. Just I'm not going to get around to it. Well, I think that's just it's a good perspective on um, not to say project creep, but I think you get sometimes we get forced into corners, so to speak, with projects where something like this, where you're trying to put in foot buttons or do some you know, fiberglass work on the foredeck and you're ready to reinstall things or it's a hatch or whatever it is. But then you kind of, you stop and say, well, I have to paint this eventually. I have to do, so this one project that was installing some buttons or, you know, doing fiberglass repair. Now it grows a little bit to saying, okay, well, if I'm going to install this stuff, I should paint it first. But that can sometimes bring you down a whole nother track of, okay, well, I'm going to paint this. What am I going to do for paint? And let's say you're just starting this project. So you're thinking, well, what am I going to do for paint? And maybe that backs you up a little bit to, well, with this fiberglass work, I was going to use epoxy, but maybe do I need to use a vinyl resin for this or a polyester resin? Because, you know, the paint system might be affected by that. And we start getting these different components and, you know, or, you know, but I have to do more fiberglass work. So I was going to just use epoxy for this little bit on the foredeck. But if I'm doing a lot of fiberglass work, is it more cost effective to use a different type of resin? And if I do that, then, you know, so it's and then's and then's and then's. <laughs> and if you're just starting from scratch and you don't have a sort of a knowledge base, these are big yeah. steps that really can not say derail a project, but yeah, you're suddenly you're growing. So now you're thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to paint this quick. Well, shoot, am I going to use an oil-based paint? Am I going to use, you know, a one-part kind of, advanced simple paint you know like an easy poxy kind of thing or shoot am i going to go into a two-part paint am i going to do a gel coat and now you're on you've basically doubled or tripled the scope of this just because you have to learn what it is you even want to do to start with you know and then there's trickle down from each of these and i think that's a big part of, of these projects that can be really fun but can also um you know can also sort of derail something because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, that it's just, it grows and grows and grows. And I think that kind of also transitions a little bit into some of the stuff, doing it yourself versus paying someone to do it. Because in that same instance, if you're going to spend, and again, it's always whether there's budget, time, money, whatever you're, you're budgeting, but 
you know, if I have to spend a week of my time researching what kind of paint I'm going to use and how to do this process, is it worth having someone else do this? Who's just going to, you know, all I'm doing is paying them to do the job. And granted, you're, you're paying them for their, their history, their education, you know, all that's kind of included in that price. But, but it's sometimes that, that affects the way we think of certain projects and scale is, you know, sort of how much of my time has to go into this. Cause this button just turned into learning how to, you know, two part spray a boat. But Steve, at the same time, I feel like that could then people would then look at that and say, I can't figure all this. It's too daunting. I can't trace all those, you know, downstream steps that come from the fallout of me replacing this button that I have to know in advance. So I choose the right paint and so forth. Um, People might say, oh, I shouldn't be a boat owner or I can't do this. And they just hire someone. I think the learning process is really valuable. You may be paying for someone to do the job, but if you do it yourself, you're, you're getting an education. And I think that's really, really valuable, incredibly valuable. But I also think if you choose the wrong paint, it's not that big a deal. You can repaint it later. It's another learning opportunity. You can have mismatched paint on your boat. That's really not that big a deal. And I, you know, it's all a part of the process of being a boat owner and learning. And I think that that's great. If the button's working, perfect. If the paint's protecting the uh, deck, great. And if it's two different colors, <laughs> in the end, that's not going to matter. Benji's his eyes are big. He's like, that is a big deal. <laughs> Don't look too closely at Rasinante, though. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to, I just wanted to add that, like, maybe half of my time is spent researching what I need to do for a certain project. Like you're not always just engaged with the nuts and bolts of the thing. You you really have to make sure that you know what you're getting into that. Yeah. Like, you know, this primer is going to match up with this paint and everything kind of works together. And that's kind of been a hard lesson learned is, you know, like buying, buying something for your boat. Like I, I bought a radar reflector and I'm like, okay, well let's go mount this thing. And I'm like, Oh, well, it didn't come with brackets and then you have to go buy the brackets and the fasteners for it. And you're like, the brackets and the fasteners cost just as much as the thing itself. Why don't they sell this as a package? Are they trying to reduce costs or, you know, but this is like the most common thing in boat ownership. It's just not all in one package. It's just multiple different things. Absolutely. I mean, the research thing, like you said, you spend half your time, 50% of your time, if not more researching and and planning, right, Steve? Yeah. And learning. I mean, that's sort of, it's all part of that, I guess, that economics of time, money, you know, quality, uh, figuring out, you know, if you want to learn how to do it on your own, it takes a lot of time. Even when you do it a lot, you know, it's sort of like when I, when I do projects, when I'm doing it professionally and getting paid to do stuff, I always have to factor that in. If, if I'm saying I can deliver a professional quality finish to whatever it is, that means that I'm going to have to eat a lot of hours relearning how to do this before I actually do the final product, you know, on things that I don't do every day. Um, but then certainly from, you know, the other side of it, when I'm doing it for myself, yeah, it's tons of that and tons of time spent learning a new thing just because I want to do it myself. But else, just touching what Teresa was, was getting at. And I think that's super important. And I often, I get kind of mired down when I'm teaching or explaining some of these things. So I think it's important for someone to understand at least on a, you know, preliminary level, what the process is, what they're actually undertaking and the different steps involved with it. The, the, the end sort of ideal that I like to put out is, is that, you know, you don't want to let perfection prevent good enough. Right. Like for, for me as, as sort of, again, like I consider myself a professional, a lot of these areas, 
oftentimes, you know, you get so stuck in thinking, well, I have to finish this project to the standard that I would if I was being paid to do it. That might be me a little bit. <laughs> right. And then the, the flip to that is that like, well, it doesn't have to be done that well. And the reality is we could do it just good enough for what its purpose is ever going to be in half the time, right? Or a quarter of the time. Because often that's really what it is. The difference between having something being functional and being, you know, Bristol finish is three, four, five times the actual um, investment in the project, you know, financially and, and time-wise. And especially with paint finish like that, you know, and, yeah. and just like you're saying, Teresa, like being willing to just say, it doesn't matter. It's good enough for now, right? Like yeah. the bow is painted. The foredeck is, is painted. It has not skid on it. Maybe it's not what we're going to do forever. But, you know, if we have to sand it back in a couple of years, so be it. Like the project actually got done to the point that we, we needed it to. And I think that is important. And, it's, and I honestly don't have never seen any boat that's actually out there cruising that's like Bristol. Perfect. Beautiful. It's always in a state of project at some place on the boat. Mm -hmm. I, and, um, uh, and good. And I like you, I like what you said. What was it about? We don't something about good enough versus perfect. Right. Trying not to let perfection or the, the daunting undertaking, you know, prevent you from starting it, preventing you from doing a job that's good enough to function when that's what's, what's actually needed. I, yeah. I believe that's called analysis paralysis. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yep. And Benji and I kind of, we, on our lists, we'll, we'll highlight the ones that are safety related. And those ones are the top priority to focus on perfection or really spend that time making it great. But the things that are cosmetic. So we have, we have like a priority list of like, this, this is a safety feature. This is a cosmetic feature. This is a comfort feature. And we prioritize it. Safety is the most important projects we need to do. Comfort is the next most important. And cosmetic are the least important projects that we need to do. Um, we want to be safe. We want to be comfortable and enjoy the ride. And then eh, we want it to look pretty too. But um, if it doesn't, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, we might disagree a little bit on that order, but <laughs> <laughs> well, it's within it's within reason. It's harder for you, right? It's harder when you're when you're presenting a professional product, right? And you're saying like this is our commercial vessel. And, you know, the, the one thing someone notices is maybe that, you know, poorly painted patch of a repair that you just didn't see the need to spend $3,000 to, you know, repaint that, you know, professionally, so to speak. And it's like, well, yeah, I, I get that that's there, but the rest of this boat is an absolute, you know, high standard functioning right. Vessels, so people tell me that time and time again when I dig into certain yeah. things. Like I, I want it to be so I don't notice it, but everybody's like, nobody else will notice that but you. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it comes down to it. We just can't afford our own work. Yeah, you know, is sort of a saying that some of us have. There's like you can't, you can't afford to finish something to that that high a degree on your own boat because otherwise we can't afford our own boats. Right. I want to just say that, um, you know, last year, I think it was, uh, maybe it was two years ago now, I, I made a decision on some paint. And I've done a lot, I've used two-part uh, paint almost exclusively on my boat painting jobs because I know it, it just stands up and lasts forever. And um, despite it costing more and, and <clears throat> uh, taking more time, I think. However, I'm in this situation where I decided to go against my usual and I painted my boom two years ago with single part paint. And um, it 
immediately rubbed off. My spinnaker sheet was rubbing on the boom and little chips have fallen off since then. Perhaps I did a poor job, but I'm at the point where now I have to repaint that boom. I, I, I no longer can stand the chipped paint on the boom. Um, so I'm going back to my two-part paint and, and that's just one of those decisions I made along the way to try to save money that is not paying off in the end as far as time goes and money because I'm repainting it with two-part paint now. And I'm just wondering if you all have had any experiences like that where you, you end up having to redo something because you made a decision earlier on that you disagree with now. Yes. <laughs> totally. Um, my answer is no. <laughs> oh, but there's a reason for that. Uh, because my dad was always a cheapskate and he would never do anything the right way. He was always trying to find the, the most bottom dollar solution to something, just kind of patch it up. And, you know, for myself, um, after he passed away, just inheriting things like his truck and the family house and stuff where he paid zero attention to fixing everyday problems. That is just, it consumed my entire life for five years just to try and, and get everything to a working place where I could sell it. <laughs> like, you know, nobody's going to buy a truck with, with no brakes or a fuel system that somehow he was driving around or a house with no plumbing. So I think I kind of learned that through him that you just have to put the money forward for the good thing, the good investment. However, maybe I am learning that right now with boat paint because I am using a, a one-part boat paint for the deck. And maybe I might come to regret that. But the flip side to something like that with the boat paint is that you can somewhat easily repaint it, right? Or you could... Yeah, I just paint you know, it down it, and paint it over again. <laughs> right, and it's not... And when even painting it twice with a, a one-part, a good quality one-part paint is sometimes less labor and cost-intensive than doing a single coat of a two-part. You know, once you consider the, all the different necessary primers and layers you know, stages of the process. So I, some of those things, I do think there's a balance to it. Yeah, Totally. And you're talking about that balance between, are you spending your time or are you spending your money right now to fix this project? And I think about that in the whole, like the overall picture, a lot of times when people are buying a boat, we talk to a lot of people who are buying a boat. They come, they take one of our courses or sail training courses. And then now they're talking with us because they want to buy a boat and they want to go on this trip. They want to cruise the Bahamas or the Caribbean, or maybe they have grand plans to do a circumnavigation. And um, they, they often have a very specific plan. They, or they only have one year sabbatical or something. They've got to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And so they say, I'm going to buy a boat that is like 90% great, 90% ready to go. I'm going to spend two months fixing it up and $10,000 and then I'm going to go. And, um, and I think about that and it never works out that way. It, it's no. always either more money or more time or more both. So everybody who's come into the yard um, since the beginning of the summer now, they had only planned to be here a couple weeks for whatever project and they have been here for months. Like, you know, something always happens. Maybe they have to attend to something off the boat or just the regular project creep. Things blow up and you can't get apart and it just ends up taking forever. And now like um, there's an aluminum sco schooner next to me and they had come into the yard for a couple of weeks just to do bottom paint. But now the, the weather has gotten too cold and an aluminum boat really transmits that temperature. So they've constructed this tent around the entire bottom sides have two diesel heater units 
on the inside of the tent to heat, you know, constantly keep the hull warm so they can continue to do this bottom job. It's pretty incredible. But yeah, Teresa, I think what you're saying also sums back to that uh, analysis paralysis from Ben or, you know, that uh, fear of getting into something is that's what I always tell people when they're talking about buying a boat or any of it is sort of just do it. Right? If your dream is to get a boat, if your dream is to, to be on a boat soon and sailing, you know, it's different if someone's genuine, you know, true goal and dream is to be proper blue water offshore sailing, like totally different world. But just getting into a boat period is sort of, you know, as long as there's not obviously like huge structural issues and that sort of thing, it's like, just get a boat. You know, the, the right boat is the one that you can get. You know, I, I think the biggest thing is just doing it, just start it, you know, and it, you might not be able to, most of us can't afford that fully functional, you know, blue water capable, ready two, three, four hundred thousand dollars boat, you know, but if you can afford that $10,000 boat and it's going to get you on the water and get you learning, especially early in your sailing career where you haven't really done much, then that's where I always push just, just do it, you know, just get it on the, get on the water, get into that boat. I don't recommend someone does what yeah. I did, you know, and buy a 40 yeah. footer for a song. That's going to take a tremendous amount of work, but there are enough boats out there that are attainably priced, you know, and, and, and set up well enough that you can get into it and learn some stuff on the way, but you could easily, you know, get a bottom dollar boat and be out cruising Penobscot Bay, be cruising coastwise in the right parts of the summer, you know, the right weather windows. And um, uh, a lot of people, I think um, another paralysis that comes in is when um, you think you need all of these things. You think you need, you know, like I said, I thought I needed an overboard discharge toilet on my boat and I, I, I never put it in. But um, you think you need all these things. You think you need the all the electronics. And you think you need the uh, this and that, the electronic winch and, and whatnot. Really, for us, for Rasinante, the boat came with a lot of systems and like so many systems. The boat had been around the world. It had so many systems, but they weren't well maintained. And so we had the, for each one, we had to make the choice. We can either fix this and maintain it or we can rip it out. And I cannot tell you oft how often the choice was to rip it out. We didn't need it. We didn't need it. We didn't need it. We didn't need it so many times. We took out the water maker, didn't need it. We have plenty of water in our water tanks. We have um, we have up to eight people on the boat. We have plenty of water for at least a week or more without skimping on anything. That's great, you know, and with that many people aboard. So if we're doing a big passage with less people, we can go several weeks. And so... We didn't need the water maker. We have a generator on board that we have that has not worked, but it has not made it onto the list to fix it because it's low priority. We don't need it. And so finally this year, Benji's like, I'm just going to take it out. That space would be much better, much more useful as a locker than as a generator that it doesn't work. And so move, remove it. Like all these systems are just getting removed and the stuff that we do have on board works well. It's reliable. It's safe. Um, so I think I think a, another thing is that very often you need a lot less than you think you need because if you start asking people what do I need, everybody has a different opinion and different priority, and you write them down, and eventually you think you need all of it, but you don't. Yeah, and some of that goes with experience and learning too. Stuff like a generator, you know, figuring out what it is you actually, what is you actually need, what are your goals with this generator, right? If you, if you need to, you know, run a washer and dryer every day, and that's part of 
what you need, then sure, you know, you, you need a generator, but you know, or running AC constantly on a bigger scale, <laughs> but learning, you know, that a solar setup can actually, you know, a pretty simple setup can accomplish the same task yeah. for maybe the same or less money up front. And without that same annual maintenance and, you know, and, and trouble and that sort of thing. Yeah. And that's what we found too. Her. So r running backwards, maybe to project philosophy, like when I'm engaging with something, I think my whole point is not to be the previous owner that the new owner is going, oh my God, what were they thinking when they did this? Or, I mean, because so many systems I've torn into were just solely, so poorly thought out. I mean, just wires and hose just stuck through the most convenient place, but not like really sorted out or there wasn't a lot of thought going into it. Yeah, understood. You know, I've, I've um, been in, a, I have a good friend who's been working on his boat for a long time. And um, it happened with my previous boat with Bristol Channel Cutter, Elizabeth. Uh, the owner had been working on that for a long time and unfortunately never got to sail the boat. Yeah. And I'm worried about this thing, same thing happening to my other friend who's working on his boat currently. Um, perfectionist, super perfectionist, wants to get everything on the boat just right before he ever goes sailing. You know, of course, we took the exact opposite approach and we bought a boat in Panama and took it on a 3,000-mile uh, shakedown sail to find out if it was, you know, what was wrong with it, et cetera, and, to, <laughs> you know, to bring it home. And, of course, we swore we were going to sell the boat as soon as we got home. Here we are eight or nine years later. We still have the boat, and she's great. We love it. But we had a 3,000-mile shakedown sail that we found all the problems. So, you know, I think that there's there's value in, in spending some time with your boat, but there's a lot more value in getting out on your boat as it is and going sailing. And Angie, I don't know about that, though. Some people enjoy the project. True. And maybe that's why it's extended a long, long time for some people. It's true. It's and they true. don't really want to go sailing. They like being home, you know? No. Sometimes I, like I mean, I get it. I get it from friends that I've had in the boatyard. Like, they keep on trying to reiterate, like, the point of the sailboat is to sail it. And Daphne, you need to get out there on the water. And that's very true. Um, but, I, I mean, I keep it in mind, like, what I, what I absolutely need to get done to make the boat ready versus what I can be doing when I'm out there. I mean, that is a, a constant thought that's in my mind when I'm going through stuff. Like I, I need a fuel system. I can't, you know, get by without that. But, you know, other parts of refinishing the woodwork on the boat, yeah, I can I can do a lot of that while I'm on the water. Yeah, I think um, it's been a long conversation. And so we'll just have five more minutes to wrap things up. And is there anything, Benji has um, something, one final question, yeah, but is there anything that you think is important to cover in this topic and this podcast for an audience of newbie cruisers that we haven't really discussed yet. So maybe something, yes. maybe what is something you all wish you had known when you were thinking about getting into a project? Not just, you know, project creep is a, a general statement, but when you, when you're looking at something like number one, you have to look at everything, not everything, but like, you know, you have to take a hard, honest look at maybe a problem you're, you're seeing on the boat and you have to kind of mentally work yourself through the natural conclusion as to what's going to happen with that. And I want to say like, I think I crossed that nexus when I had already scheduled a, a splash date. I had already paid for dockage and then I was just doing, I don't know, something, something on my rudder. And I noticed that, Hey, there was a small little crack on the rudder. And then I kind of saw that the crack was all on the leading edge. And now I'm like, well, 
the rudder needs to come off. And suddenly, you know, I drop the rudder, there's a, a crack running straight down the leading edge and everybody in the boatyard's going like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? What's wrong with this rudder? Is this boat even worth it anymore? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, suddenly I'm peeling back a third of the rudder just to find out how bad it is. And it turns out it, it wasn't that bad, but you know, you, you need to take that. I mean, I lost that month of dockage because of that, I lost being able to go down the Erie Canal and had to get towed down to Annapolis. But, you know, you just have to reach this point of honesty that you need to do that work. I, I wouldn't have trusted putting the boat in the water with a cracked rudder. That's just, you know, insane. Yes. Poor seamanship. Poor seamanship. Yeah. I think for me, one of the one of the hardest things to figure out is, is how long a project's going to take, how much it's going to cost. And... I wondered if you had a formula for that or any ideas on how to help people come up with those numbers. I know for me personally, I'm like, well, it's probably going to take, you know, $800 and three days. So then I just triple that. Yes. You know, it's going to take nine days and it's going to take $2,400 or, you know, something of that nature. Yeah. Usually triple on the time, maybe double on the money, something along that line. But wondering if you had any formulas that you work with or ways to help yourself figure out those numbers. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty spot on. Um, You know, I think that's sort of an important point in that specifically what you're saying is, yeah, I think for myself, I'll usually double. You know, especially if I'm giving someone else a quote, sort of like this is what, you know, it, it could be as low as this, but it also could very easily be this much, you know, especially if there's any mystery in what's going on, you know, because rarely do you actually have something right in front of you and you can say, no, point blank, this is going to be a three hour job. Like I'm looking at, I know exactly what's going to happen because um, it's, it's a boat. So there's always mystery around it. Um, but I think certainly, you know, for the sake of, of folks getting out on their boats and cruising. I think there, there is a certain, certain amount of lying to yourself, right? And even myself, like my wife and I, when we discuss projects and we discuss what's going on, in my head, there's totally the, the realistic track, right? Like I, I know what the numbers are. I know what the time is. And there, there's a pretty specific calculus. But then there's the other side of my head that's taking those numbers and just going to the bare minimum. Saying, no, I, I think we can do this for, you know, this could be 500 bucks. We could definitely do this for $500. It's going to be, you know, a couple gallons of this or that, you know, it's going to be this much material. And, you know, realistically, that's like eight hours of work. You know, we, it's worth, let's just do it. Cause I think so much of this is irrational, right? I mean, they're, they're boats. There are very few of us that have, have the capital to, to in good conscience undertake what we do. Right. I think 95% of those of us out there and these projects are things that aren't rational, right? There's no reason to spend this much money on, on a boat that's frivolous, right? Like there are the few people who are actually departing on this trip across the Indian ocean. But for most of us, if that's not your realistic immediate goal, there's no need to do a lot of what we do, you know? So there are other things we should be spending this money on. There are other things we should maybe be doing with our time, you know, and, and rarely is a project completely enjoyable, right? Like you do enjoy some part of it or you wouldn't do it, but there's going to be, you know, probably that extra hundred percent of time that you've allotted. That's not specifically type one fun, right? There's a lot of that. That's definitely verging on type two, type three fun, but we had to do it to get in. And I think it's, there is a sick joy we get out of it. And, you know, if, if we were completely honest, we wouldn't undertake these projects. And I think that's, that's akin to taking, to any big step in your life, you know, is 
is I, I think the reality of it for most of us is that this is all a leap of faith, so to speak. This is all, you know, pushing yourself to do something that you're not necessarily that comfortable with because it isn't really all that rational, right? Like there's, we don't need to have a boat. We certainly don't need to have a 40 foot cruising boat, but we do kind of like it and we do sort of enjoy it. And no, I will absolutely not amortize what I have in this boat over how many days I actually go cruising over the summer because I'm not going to look at it that way. I can't, you know, we, we can't say, well, we went out and, you know, we had two weekends this summer and three overnight days because that just, it just doesn't work, you know? So I, I do think there's a certain amount that you do have to kind of do what it takes to get in there as long as it is, you know, safe, so to speak, financially for you, you know, you don't. It's always devastating to see someone who's just sort of gone beyond their means into one of these projects. But, you know, I, I do think there's a certain amount of just sort of stepping into the deep end to get going and keep keep doing what you want to do. Agreed. It's wonderful, though, isn't it? Just jumping full in. It becomes addictive. It absolutely is. It does. I mean, there. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I mean, I do enjoy the project, like you said, about 50% of the time. But, you know, the, the end result is really all worth it. Usually. We think. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully. That's what I keep telling myself. <laughs> hopefully, right. hopefully. All right. Well, any final words before we depart? Yeah. I think just to touch up on a couple of things, you know, I, I think it's just so important for someone to, with all that I've just said, you know, to, to do take a somewhat realistic look at what you're doing, get an understanding of what this project might be, what it might become, what the potential plan B and plan C is going to be when you start tearing into something, you know, and, and knowing before you start that you'll be able to, with some certainty, get through whatever might come from it. You know, planning to some degree, having an idea of what the fallout of this project will be, you know, as far as making sure you're, if you can, kind of keeping it to one area, containing the the dust, containing the, the fallout, whatever it is. Um, mm. You know, preparing for the project with some, some thought. You know, it, you can always jump into things, but Usually, we're a little better off if we can take the time to to think about what tools are going to be right, what what might be necessary, you know, and how do we how do we try to contain contain it to this this one space if possible. I think it's that usually in, in our case helps helps with the success of a project. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the other thing that's a really great takeaway I think from doing these projects is all the stuff you learn. And the next time you have to do it or something similar, it's twice as fast and maybe costs twice as less or, you know, half the cost. Um, and I think that's, that's what makes us putting the time and the money into it valuable is that the next time we have to do it, <laughs> it's faster. I mean, I would hope you agree with me, right? Does it get faster? Yes, right? I think what you, crazy? you tend to do is you just tend to tackle bigger projects. Right. Well, your scope increases willingly. Yes. But the other reality is if you're going offshore, if you are genuinely going to take your boat somewhere and be remote, you have to have this experience because things are going to break. You know, they're going to break eventually. And if you've never touched any of it, you know, it's a lot easier to fix something upside down in a gale in the middle of nowhere if you've done it before. You know, if you have some idea what you're looking for, Um, you know, if that bolt has actually been loosened at some point in the last 20 years, there's a chance it might come free when you need it to, you know, when you're replacing that starter, when you're doing whatever it is, rarely do we get forced into doing these projects in ideal circumstances. So I think the more time we can spend familiarizing ourselves and educating ourselves, you know, it's really, it's to our own benefit. I also wanted to say that like a lot of people will approach me and they will ask, 
how did you get good at boat work? And I just say, I really have no idea what I'm doing, but I like that learning space is where I'm really happy to be. And I'm willing to be able to, you know, take on that task of learning what needs to be done and then doing it and giving myself some space to screw up and maybe having to redo it a little bit. But, you know, eventually you get good at it. You do. Practice makes perfect, they say. That's great. I think that's a great place to wrap up with. Um, Daphne, I've noticed you've been posting a lot of stuff on Instagram. How can people find you? Oh, I'm at uh, SV Isadora, and um, that's that's the boat yeah. on Instagram. And also my artistic side is at Daphnephilia. Ah, yes. That's that's a mouthful <laughs> and some spelling, I think. We'll, we'll put that in the link in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. And Steve, you're pretty much off the social, aren't you? I am. Yeah. Yeah. I think good for you. My professional focus has been, you know, mostly private for a while. So I haven't had much need for that side of things. Um, And then I'm just becoming, I guess, an old Luddite as well. Very good. good. But I will take the opportunity to promote my wife, who uh, has recently taken over Gamble and Hunter Sailmakers out of Camden and, and Rockport. So their handle on Instagram is Gamble and Hunter. And there's lots of good stuff there, good content. Uh, some overlap from the two of us, our personal sailing as well as professional side of things. Yes, good work getting done over there. All right, you two, thank you so much. Hope that was fun. I enjoyed it. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Ben and we'll, Daphne, uh, for uh, sharing in this, having me. Appreciate it. Thanks. That was great. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to The Morning Muster wherever you get your podcasts or visit morsealpha.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Morselfa Expeditions. The music is by Tim Erickson, my brother, and you can find him at timericksonmusic.com. Until next time, stay found. <laughs>